Good morning. Welcome to our, our time of worship this morning. You know, as we, as we celebrate our independence as a country tomorrow, um, we, would, we would be remiss not to remember our Christian roots and our heritage. So I want to share with you a few, a few quotes uh, from, the, from the men who led our, our nation in those early years of its founding. And listen to what they have to say about scripture, about the gospel, about Christ, about Christianity. John Dickinson, signer of the Constitution, governor of Pennsylvania, said this. Listen to these words. Rendering thanks to my creator for my existence and station among his works, for my birth in a country enlightened by the gospel and enjoying freedom, and for all his other kindnesses, to him I resign myself, humbly confiding in his goodness and in his mercy through Jesus Christ for the events of eternity. So as we pray this morning, um, let's pray that, that our leaders would have this view of life as it pertains to their leading of, of our country. And again, we would be remiss not to remember and to be thankful for our Christian heritage as a nation. And so with that, as we pray, let's also remember uh, our, our featured Saba Church this, this morning. That's Taylor Baptist. Uh, Bobby Ellis, Elliott is the pastor there. Uh, some, some requests that he's put forth, outreach efforts, the health and well-being of the congregation. So, uh, so as, we, as we pray, let's pray for those things in regards to, to those, those, uh, those efforts. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for what a country that's founded on biblical principles. Lord, um, and we are thankful for the men who realized their existence came from you. Uh, Lord, that their understanding of scripture, that the gospel should be at the heart of any governing system. So Father, we're thankful to you for that. We're thankful, Lord, uh, that we um, have the, the freedom that we have, um, Lord, because of what we believe, because of our, our Christian roots, Lord. And we're able to worship and gather this morning to do just that, to worship you, uh, Father. Lord, we pray, uh, Lord, that you would just direct this time. May it be pleasing to you. May it be honoring to you, Lord. Uh, may it be beneficial to us, Lord, and pleasing to you in your eyes. And we ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.
best be able to track with me this morning, I want to encourage you, if you don't have your Bible with you, reach in that rack in front of you, the pew rack, and pull out one of those pew Bibles and turn it to Jude, the book of Jude. It's only one chapter, so it's technically Jude 1, I guess. I'm going to set the stage for you for the text we're about to read just very briefly. The church is still in its early stages. But as we've begun to see already in the book of Acts, persecution has already taken root, and in a very serious way. Imprisonments, martyrdom, all those things mark the early church. And yet it's spreading. And every time the persecution ramps up, the response of the church rises up to meet it, and the church perseveres. And it's growing. But even in its early stages, even when those men who had walked with Jesus who had spent time with Jesus, who had heard from Jesus, were leading the church, there still was always the potential of heresy and apostasy. And it doesn't take very long for those truths which are commonly held, believed by everyone, seen, observed, practiced, to be let go of. And so the challenge to early church, we're seeing already, if it's true in the first century, if the, in the first century there's a challenge that the church might lose itself, lose its mission, lose its message, how much more is there a challenge in the 21st? And I want to read you from Jude, starting in verse 3. Beloved, 
Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I don't want to read into what Jude didn't say, but it seems in his introduction that he wanted to write something that was just positive, uplifting, and encouraging, something that was celebratory, something like a doxology, something that we worship to. Let's talk about the goodness of God in Christ. Let's talk about the power and the beauty of the gospel. Let's talk about what God is doing in our lives and in the world. But he says, I felt the need, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to appeal to you. Now, why would he have to appeal to them? If I were saying this to you today, if I were saying to you, I appeal to you to do this, whatever the this is, then the appeal would naturally follow a deficit. The only reason I'm appealing to you is because you're not doing this, but you need to be doing this. You must be doing this. And so Jude says, I appeal to you to contend for the faith which was once and for all entrusted to the saints. This is your sacred duty. It has been entrusted to you. If you don't hold it, if you don't believe it, if you don't practice it, if you don't communicate it, if you don't share it, if you don't pass it down, it will be lost. This is your sacred duty as a Christian. And he uses a word that I don't believe is very popular today. At least it's not very common in modern Christian practice. He says, I urge you, I appeal to you to contend. This is not a difficult word. It's not a controversial word. It's not a word where we say, I'm not sure what the original meaning is. It always means to struggle for, to fight for, to wrestle for, whether the context is a military one and it's an actual battle of life and death, or whether it's an athletic one like two wrestlers struggling. The meaning is the same. I'm telling you, you've got to fight for this. You can't practice Christianity in a pagan culture passively. And the world that we live in has shown us that. That where the church is passive, where the church sees its primary mission as being friendly to, generous towards, courteous about, even accommodating to the culture we live in, the church gets trounced. The gospel gets lost. God's glory gets denied. And people get condemned. So he says, I urge you to contend for the faith. And here's where he begins a series of whys. Four, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They sneak in. They worship with you. They serve alongside you. They share communion with you. They have a meal with you in your home. I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, and what a phrase. I want to remind you of something you once fully knew. What does that mean? You're losing this. You're letting it go. It's slipping away. You once fully knew this. He said, I want to remind you, you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serves an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Three examples of God's judgment. 
First judgment on the wilderness generation, Numbers chapter 14. Why? Because they didn't believe. And they demonstrated their unbelief because they didn't persevere. They were never able to reach what God intended for them because of unbelief. Or the fallen angels, those who abandoned their place, those who abandoned their position and rebelled against God are now being held in judgment for the final day. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, which gave in to the worst of their lusts, increasing in the progression of sin, utter debauchery. And we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose consequences are eternal, they're destroyed. And then he says this, catch this phrase, yet in like manner. The unbelieving generation, the fallen angels, the most obvious and audacious of sinners, Yet in the same manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they don't understand. They're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. If you want a verse that marks the culture that you live in today, it's Jude verse 10. Blaspheme that which they don't understand, which they don't know, which has not been made known to them. Live like unreasoning animals following every instinct, every fleshly desire, doing what you want, whatever you feel. Woe to them. They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perished in Korah's rebellion. Another triad, triad of examples. We know Cain. Cain was a slave to his base desires. Cain lived like an animal, did that was instinctual to him. Cain killed his brother. Balaam compromised with the worst of the culture around him. According to Peter, 2 Peter 2.15, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. He knew what was right and what was wrong. Sometimes he served as an accurate prophet of God. But he loved the culture so much and what it brought him, he couldn't divorce himself from it. And Korah. Korah infamously led a destroyed him as a result. All of my hypocrisy and was that always, always, always judgment. Verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Just beneath the surface. They're there. The danger's there, and many will crash on them. Many will be damaged by them, some destroyed by them. They're hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. You know what that phrase means? Feast with you without fear. He's not talking about just the fellowship, chicken casserole dinner after the service. He's not talking about hanging out in individual homes. He's talking about that meal that marks the people of God. He's talking about that communal meal that we would call the Lord's Supper. And he says they do it without fear. It means nothing to them. They can live sinful lives. They can live defiant lives. They can live rebellious lives, godless lives, without fear that God might judge them in some way. God is light on them. He says they're shepherds only feeding themselves. What does that mean? It means these aren't just the members of your congregations. These are sometimes the leaders of them. They're waterless clouds. They promise something they don't provide. They're swept along by winds. They have no stability. They move with the times, with the culture, with the tides. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, you, who's the you, beloved, the church, the people of God, you, beloved, must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. In the last, time, in the last days, this is what you will see. It's these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You're going to be challenged from within and from without. The tide of time is not going to go with you or for you, but against you, so be prepared. But you, you keep yourself you persevere, you hold on, you wait for the return of Christ. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude is describing the first century. If we change the language up a little bit, change the specific sinful references up just a little bit, he could easily have been speaking of the 21st century. The world in which you live and how you should live in it. In his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman said this. He says, Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. And my challenge to you today, what I implore you, is with the same sort of admonition that Jude gave the first century church. Contend. It's time to contend. You and I must be prepared to contend, to wrestle, to struggle, to fight. And the question I have for you today is this, when is it time to fight? When is it right to fight? My baseline presupposition is this, the church has long been prone to passivity, apathy, indifference. Maybe thinking that the virtue of kindness or niceness is the prevailing virtue. But in so doing, we've lost ground over and over and over and over and over. And now as a rising tide comes against us, as the storm clouds gather all around us, as the true church is being winnowed, as we see the decline across our nation in worship, church attendance, even in our own denomination, it's time for the real church, the blood-bought church, the spirit-filled church, the Bible-believing church, to prepare to fight, to stand. I heard an interesting statistic just this past week. One of our local news stations contracted with a consulting uh, research organization to find out the percentage of people in the wiregrass. So we're not talking about the most unreached portions of our country. 
We're not talking about the bastions of ungodliness. We're not talking about those places that we might immediately take our minds to as the worst of the worst or the most sinful of the sinful. But right here in our own backyard, what's the percentage of people that are churched? Not the percentage of people that would mark on a form, yes, I'm a Christian, or even tell you they're a member of a particular church, but what percentage of them are actually churched, showing up? 16%. You don't live in as, in, a, in as godly a community or culture as you thought you did. 16%. So how do we stand? When is it right to fight? I want to pray about that, then I want to share with you the occasions that Scripture challenges us to step up. Father God, speak to us this morning. Challenge us, not just in a nebulous, collective sense. Yeah, that's what they ought to do. That's what the church ought to do. But God, in a very personal and real sense, what must I do to be faithful to you, to show my allegiance to King Jesus, my place in this kingdom right now against the kingdom of darkness, for your glory and for the everlasting good of those who need the gospel. Show me today, Father, show us today what we ought to do. Then, Father, give us the guts to do it. Give us spiritual power. Lord, by your spirit, fill us. Prepare us, strengthen us, and send us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When is it right to fight? According to Jude, priority number one would be this. It's right to fight when you look around and you honestly assess with biblical eyes and you see that the gospel itself is in jeopardy. That's when it's time for the church to step up and say, no, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. This is our message. You see, we've changed the gospel so much into this gospel of personal benefit. Here's how you can be happier. Here's how you can have a more satisfying life. Here's how you can find a sense of purpose and meaning. Here's how you can find a sense of your own self, your own identity. Here's where you can find your self-worth and value. Here's where you can find a code that gives you direction in life. And while the, the Bible may do all those things for us, and the Holy Spirit in us may accomplish all those things in us, that's not the primary purpose of the gospel. You see, the gospel is not just true for those who choose to believe it. The gospel is fundamentally a declaration of propositional truth. This is true for everyone everywhere. This is who God is. This is the judgment that's coming from a holy and perfect God. This is the means by which you can not only avert that judgment, but enjoy God forever. Here's the good news of God in Christ. And we're losing that. And when I say we're losing that, I'm saying we're losing it, not just in our culture at large. We should not expect the world that we live in, the television shows that we watch, the movies that we go to see, the newspaper, well, they don't, we don't have those anymore, the outlets online that we read, we shouldn't expect those to espouse the gospel, but we surely should expect those who claim to be the church to do so. A couple years ago, a member of a local church, his name is Colton Corder, he's a member of University Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, set out to answer this question, What's the preaching like in America's biggest churches? Simple question. What's the preaching like in America's biggest churches? Let me read you from the article. He said this. He says, I listen to four sermons each from the country's nine biggest evangelical churches. So we're not talking about Mormon. We're not talking about Jehovah Witness. We're not talking about Roman Catholic. We're talking about evangelical, people who say they believe what you and I say we believe. Nine biggest evangelical churches, Church of the Highlands, Birmingham, Alabama, North Point Ministries, Alpharetta, Georgia, Gateway Church, South Lake, Texas, 
Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio, Christ Church of the Valley, Peoria, Peoria, Arizona, Saddleback Church, Lake Forest, California, Christ Fellowship Church, Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, Elevation Church, Matthews, North Carolina, and Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky. With an average sermon length of about 30 minutes, these reflections are based on approximately 18 hours of material. As he did his assessments, he had three or four primary assessments, but this was number one. He said this, he said, let me begin with the most important observation. In 36 sermons, the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection was unclear 36 times. Often, some or all the facets of the Christian gospel were left out. In fact, no gospel became a common note. 36 sermons, 36 times there's no gospel. Jude talked about that. He said, this has been entrusted to you. This is your sacred trust passed on from the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What will you do with it? And where the gospel is simply assumed, where you and I live with the false notion that everybody understands what the gospel is, everyone gets it, that is a sure and slippery slope to the gospel being lost. What is the gospel? I was watching this video. It was one of his last interviews. His health was poor. His breathing was labored. This was about a year before his death, and R.C. Sproul said this quote. I thought it was so powerful. He said, we should be willing to die for those truths that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith. But that error is gone. He said, when the gospel is at stake, we must be like Martin Luther, willing to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. It's time for you to step up the fight when the gospel's being lost. Who will ensure that Calvary Baptist Church holds on to the true gospel? It won't just be me or the future person who fills this spot. It won't just be elders or deacons or life group leaders. It'll be you. What, what are you willing to receive in here? Will you be willing to stand up and not be nice, be a bit confrontational, be contentious, if you will, and say, wait, that's not the gospel? Like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. Not for personal pride, not so that I can fight just to fight, but because it alone has the power of salvation for all who believe. So when the gospel is in jeopardy. Number two, it's time to fight when the church is compromised and compromising. Part of our weakness in the age in which we live is that we no longer have the moral authority to speak to the issues of our time. When our thinking begins to parallel the thinking of our culture, we have been secularized by definition. I don't know if he was right or not, but he seems awfully, awfully prophetic. Francis Schaeffer wrote about 40 years ago and said, Tell me church will be saying that to be so have We've decisions made in churches that you would never have dreamt would ever happen in a church. Decisions about sex and gender. Decisions about authority or inspiration of Scripture. Decisions about basic morality and values. How did we get here? Because we didn't contend for the faith once and for all entrusted. We're compromising and we've been compromised. I shared some of this data with you before, so I won't belabor the point. But this was a summary statement of that study done every two years called the state of theology it's done 
cooperatively between LifeWay, Christian Research, and Ligonier. And their summary statement of the last one from 2020, they said this, The state of theology reveals some not-so-surprising results about the state of churches in the United States. We point out many times that there is a great lack of in-depth teaching, very little, if any, teaching on apologetics, how to defend the faith, and a great deal of compromise in many churches. And some of these are churches who claim to be evangelical. This was their assessment. Conclusion. Many people from churches in America don't really know what they believe or why they believe it. And many don't even understand the basics of Christianity. We wonder how we got where we are. See, when you've been secularized, when you've adapted to the thoughts, ideas, principles, values, concepts of the culture in which you live, the Bible has a word for that. It's worldliness. When you begin to parallel the world, Here's the definition of worldliness. Worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations in any given culture that have at their center the fallen human being and that relegate to their periphery any thought about God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Modernity is worldliness. And has concealed its value so adroitly in the abundance, the comfort, the wizardry of our age that even those who call themselves the people of God seldom recognize them for what they are. We don't even recognize it, that we have been assimilated. One of the most powerful books that I've read on the problem of culture and its impact on America, particularly America's churches, is David Wells' God in the Wasteland. Put it on your reading list for 2022, David Wells, God in the Wasteland. He said, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique. That's not what's limiting us. That's not why people are not flocking to fill up our buildings and our services. Insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. You catch what I'm saying? If we're not effective as we would like to be, it's not because we're not as organized as we ought to be or singing what we ought to be singing or doing the programs we ought to be doing. Here's what he says is the real problem and why we are bleeding out. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. Do you hear that? God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment too benign, his gospel too easy, and his Christ is too common. Is the weight of God like a feather to us? So that when we gather, our consideration is not, what does God think? What does God want? How is God responding to our worship, not how am I feeling about it? Where is God? It's time to fight when we begin to see our own compromise, compromising. Third time to fight, according to Jude, is this. When the culture that surrounds you, that you swim in like a putrid pond, is corrupted. Now, it would be very easy for me to make this even more of a bully pulpit than I already have. I could easily talk about culture. I could probably even engender some amens, but that's not my intent today. I have lack of time nor interest to list all of the 
cultural debauchery and brokenness that we see in our world today. But I ask you this question. What did we think would happen when all the boundaries were removed? What, what did we think would happen when the foundations of truth were lost? What, what did, we, did we think would happen when we accepted the notion that truth is not absolute? What, what did we think would happen? We, we've, we've delved off now into insanity, whether it comes to sex or gender, even history. What did we think would happen when there were no boundaries, when there were no foundations, when there were no established or agreed-upon truths? British theologian Theo Hobson said there are three things that must happen for a complete moral revolution to occur in any culture. I leave this for your own assessment as to whether or not these things have happened in the culture in which you and I live. Number one, something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. Number two, something which once was celebrated is now condemned. And number three, those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Are we not living in that time right now? That's moral revolution. So what do we do? What do we do when we see culture changing so rapidly under our feet? I can remember conversations I had with church members, some of you in this room, about how quickly we might see things like gay marriage become legalized or institutionalized as a constitutional right. I said, you know, maybe five, ten years we'll see that. A couple of years. Issues now regarding sex and gender, which we never thought we would see at all, have happened so rapid fire. We're so far from the center as Christians of our culture now that we've become the bad guys. I read an article that one of you sent me this, this week from Salon Magazine. Someone who purportedly was a Christian and went to great lengths to conflate modern Christianity, evangelical Christianity, with the Nazi state in Germany even claiming that our ultimate aims are to put to death anyone who disagrees with us. It was slanderous. It was libelous. It was insanity. But is that sort of thing that's the foundation of future attacks against Christianity? So how do we respond? It's a very helpful book, The Gathering. Spare. Easy to despair. It's easy to be to read. It's easy to Twitter or social media or Instagram and, and despair of what's happening. It says that we can retreat to the corners of our coffee shops or favorite restaurants with a false sense of nostalgia that longs for the past. We can do that. But as Christians, he says, we're called to live in the present. And not only to live in the present world, but to prepare the next generation to live in this present world. So we, we can't retreat. He says the second flawed approach might be this. We might look for rescue and political victory. That's not to diminish the importance of getting out there and voting. In fact, he says, Christians might indeed have attempt to rescue society through a social political movement. We never demean the importance of election nor diminish the responsible stewardship Christians have with their vote. But don't think that political victories will establish a lasting peace. 
We celebrate a major victory, which to me is not a political victory. It's a moral victory. It's a common sense human victory. The Supreme Court recently and very rightly decided that there is no constitutional right, implied or otherwise, that grants anyone the authority to kill their own child. That's not a constitutional right. But now the battle really begins. Now states must decide. Legislators will determine the outcome. People will have to step up and vote. But don't think in the world in which you live that we're going to have peace made by political means, because we're not. Here's what he says, and I want you to hear this quote. I want to read it with all the force that I can muster. As he talks about political means will not be enough, we need theological means. We need biblical means. We need to recapture what hath God said. Listen to what he said. Christians must not retreat nor find our salvation in a false hope. We must, with every fiber of our God-given strength, with full dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit, with every ounce of conviction we can muster through prayer, with unwavering courage, protest our modern secular movement. We can't roll over. We can't be passive. As Christians continue to face the stiff wind of opposition from the storm of the secular age, we must continue to be faithful. We must say and tell what we know to be true. We must protest every false gospel, every erroneous worldview that diminishes human flourishing. We must continue to hold fast to the core theological convictions of the Christian faith and to the primacy and authority of Scripture. We must not fail in seeing Scripture rightly proclaimed, the church built up, and the message of the gospel stretched to every corner of the globe. There's a fourth reason. The church has to stand up and fight when judgment is imminent. Listen to what I'm saying. And I'll make this brief for time's sake. Simply put, the modern evangelical church doesn't preach God's judgment anymore. And so we have left out the core cause of the gospel. Why did Jesus come into this world? The Bible says, Jesus' own words, I came to save sinners. When we cut out the holiness of God and the absolute, non-negotiable, all-encompassing future judgment of God, and we reduce or eliminate any mention of sin as the great cause of that judgment, not just to separate us from our best life now, or our great potential, or our personal fulfillment or happiness, but from eternal judgment of God, when we remove that component from the gospel, what then is the good news? We've so devalued the worth of the good news that it's just simply not that appealing anymore. And why don't we preach judgment anymore? Well, it's certainly not popular. We know what kind of Christian books sell. We know what kind of podcasts get the most listeners. We know what sort of churches people will go to. They're not ones that speak of judgment. And we're far too pragmatic because our ultimate victory is being liked, being popular, being accepted. As David Wells says, we've lost sight of God. As R.C. Sproul says, we don't know the gospel. And it seems more and more our biggest fear is not offending God, but offending people. In a quest for godliness, the Puritan vision of the Christian life, J.I. Packer, 
notes what happens when the modern church abandons the teaching of God's judgment on sin. He says, we cannot present Christ as a Savior from sin and the wrath of God if we are silent about these things and preach a Christ who saves only from self and the sorrows of the world. He says, we are not preaching the Christ of the Bible. We are, in effect, bearing false witness and preaching a false Christ. Our message is another gospel. And we know what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians about another gospel. If anyone, I or the angel, should preach another gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. And yet the Bible tells us judgment is inevitable. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to men once to die. After this, judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive the things done according, in the body according to what he's done. Ecclesiastes 12.14, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Luke 8.17, nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Acts 17.31, he's appointed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained, Jesus. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Or as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1, I charge you, therefore, before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. We need to preach judgment because we have good news to offer in the face of that judgment. We have the only means of entering into that kingdom. Once that kingdom is fully established, when the king returns to this world and he establishes that kingdom, those who are outside of Christ will not be fit to enter it, and they will be judged forever. But God offers a way into that kingdom. It's through Christ who suffered for us, lived perfectly for us, died for us, rose for us, is coming back for us. We teach judgment because judgment amplifies the beauty of the gospel and the glory of God. There's a fifth reason, and it's when persecution is mounting. The church needs to be prepared for a future wave of persecution. And I'm somewhat hesitant, as I've spoken on this subject before, to claim persecution where we live today because I know what persecution looks like in other parts of the world. Not firsthand, but I read, I hear from missionaries and pastors. I know the challenges in certain places on this earth that are incredibly difficult to be a Christian, much less to make disciples. It's hard to be a disciple there, much less to lead others to become disciples. And yet, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there's not a wave of persecution coming our way already right here in the land of the free, in the home of the brave. I simply say this, American Christians who desire to live godly, biblically-oriented lives in faithfulness to King Jesus need to prepare themselves and their families to suffer for that. That's just reality. If you don't see that, it's because you don't want to. I'll give you an example from several years ago. When same-sex marriage was endorsed as a constitutional right by the Supreme Court, Justice Samuel Alito wrote of the effects that that will potentially have on anyone who dissents. Here's what he said. I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes. But if they repeat those views in public, 
they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Justice Clarence Thomas warned that decision, that decision, the way it came to pass, has, quote, potentially ruinous consequences for religious liberty. Vody Bauckham noted in a recent issue of Table Talk magazine this. He said, today, Christianity is seen as a threat to freedom or even a pathological condition. Schools accept the theory of evolution but view the idea of creation as a dangerous myth. Judges see the biblical view of sodomy as hate speech. In fact, various state departments of child protective services have at times listed regular church attendance as one of the hallmarks of abusive parenting. In this landscape, Christians must have a ready answer for those who believe we are not just wrong, we are evil. And what is the other side saying? Eugene Volokh, a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, was quoted in the New York Times as saying, and I quote, If I were a conservative Christian, which I most certainly am not, I would be very reasonably fearful, not just as to tax exemptions, but as to a wide range of other programs, fearful that within a generation or so, my religious beliefs would be treated the same way as racist beliefs are. But it won't take a generation. We're seeing it already in the arts and academics and athletics and politics, etc. We need to be prepared. We need to keep our focus on Christ. We need to commit to continue to gather as his people, to gather as a church for the mutual upbuilding of one another, for the mutual proclamation of the gospel, for prayers for ourselves and prayers for the world in which we live, even if it becomes illegal. And this is a series of messages, not simply a statement, but I fear we are woefully lacking, the majority of us, in a thorough and sound, a comprehensive biblical worldview because we are clearly in a battle of ideas, in a battle of beliefs, in a battle for truth, and we are ill-prepared. And this is where we have to engage. We need a biblical worldview that addresses every issue. Verse 20 says this, But you, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, building yourselves up, keeping yourself in the faith, patiently persevering until Christ comes. And I'll give you the fifth time to fight. And this is so critical to our mission. When God is still saving, there's a reason why we are still here. There's a reason why the church is here. God may be judging this world. He may be judging this nation. But this church is still the bride of Christ. We are still the army of God. We are still the earthly outpost of an everlasting kingdom. And as such, we have a mission to continue. And here's the beautiful irony of the dark times in which we live. The brightness of Christ shines ever more clearly. The alternative of the gospel to a culture of death and despair, meaninglessness, violence, and hatred shines ever more clearly. God is still saving. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy. We continue our mission of mercy to this world. If people were starving around us, we would be trying to get them food. 
If people were thirsty around us and didn't have potable water, we would be digging them wells. We've got people lost around us, and we need to have mercy on their souls. And that needs to be a mission of mercy, not just a concern of the heart. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Does that imagery evoke anything in your mind? Snatching them out of the fire? If you're a firefighter, you might have a very clear imagery that that evokes, where life is on the line. And you put yourself at risk to snatch them out, maybe even against their wishes. I've never fought a fire. I have been at father and son campouts where seven-year-old boys are attracted to flames like moths. And every now and then you'll see the dad watching his kid and have to grab him up, snatch him up a little bit before he does something he really shouldn't have done or hurts himself. There's some people you just have to snatch from the fire. You continue living like you are, hell's the only option. It's not, just, it's not just pain and destruction, it's spiritual death and judgment. Snatch them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. I'm merciful towards you, but I don't want, I don't want to fall into the same patterns that you're in, so I'm, I'm careful. But God is still saving. Some with mercy, some with firm action, but we continue the mission. And this quote has so challenged me these last several days. Francis Schaeffer, again, who I think in a sense, and I use the term in the loose sense, not in the biblical sense, but in so many ways is a modern prophet. Francis Schaeffer says this is not an age in which to be a soft Christian. My challenge to you today is really pretty simple. Dispense of the notions that Christianity is mostly just being nice. Love requires firmness and boldness. Love requires truth-telling and honesty. Love requires declaring God and sin and judgment. Love requires offering hope and mercy and the gospel. Love is not conceding. Love is not compromising. Love is not indifferent to the future judgment of people. Love doesn't mean backing down or shutting up. Love means boldly representing Christ and being faithful to King Jesus. Love Him most. Love what He loves. And be committed to a mission of love. That's active. This is not an age in which to be a soft Christian. So I challenge you to be ready for the struggle. Be ready to get down on the mat. Be ready to engage in the battle of ideas. Be ready to stand up for what is right and true. Be ready to, be ready to contend with a culture that doesn't agree with you, but stand. Will you pray with me this morning? Father God, we thank you today for the graces afforded to us. This land in which we live is not a perfect one, but you granted a measure of freedom here.
we're able to gather freely today. As of today, we're able to speak freely. We're able to declare freely. We're able to worship freely. And I pray if all of those things would continue. Father, I pray that we would not willingly or passively yield those freedoms. Father, we are not looking for a fight. We want to love each other well. We want to love the people around us. We have to be strong. We need a strong love. We need the strong love of Christ. We need the strong love of your Spirit. Father, we need your strong love in the world in which we live. So, Father, give us the strength to stand. And, Father, we take this admonition seriously. I pray that each of us would commit and renew our commitment to building ourselves up in the faith, praying not superficially, casually, indifferently, but praying in the Holy Spirit. We would keep ourselves morally, ethically, theologically in the love of God. And that with perseverance and patience and faithfulness, we would await your return. Father, may that be so. So, Father, use us. Use us as your people. Use this church as your church. Protect us and keep us. Empower us and send us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go out today, we're going to sing a song. And I'm going to say just these few words, and I know the hour is late. I know there's debate in these modern days about what is the what does a church, what does a biblically sound church do in these days when it comes to holidays like the 4th of July? And so there are two great divides. Some places today will do very boisterous God and country celebrating our nation and its freedom services. Others will not mention it at all, not say a word about it, believing that only God should be acknowledged, and I can understand that as well. But I labored with this and thought about it myself, and I thought we would be remiss. In fact, I think we would even be sinful to not acknowledge the particular blessings that we have as Christians here. It doesn't mean that we're not citizens of another country, another kingdom. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to reach the nations for the gospel. We're Christians first, and our ultimate kingdom is that one. But our first mission field is here, and the place that God has given us is here. And the freedoms that we have to be a base of missions throughout, throughout the globe is, is here. To not acknowledge that, God's goodness to us here, I think would be wrong. And so we're going to sing this song that I hope you know, and I hope it will remind you, not just of country and the things that we love, but a God who's been abundantly good to us. Let's, let's not waste the blessings that God has given us as we sing and we worship together. <laughs>